Judges 5 is the relationship between Judges 4 and Judges 5 is like the relationship between Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. Judges 4 records the historical narrative of the victory over the Canaanites, Jabin and Sisera. Judges 5 shows that celebrated in song. It's really interesting to see how Judges 5 ends. Judges 5 ends going back to what Judges 4 had said about that victory. And it says the land was undisturbed for 40 years. That's often given after this victory is described. For example, in in Judges chapter 3 in verse 30, you find that kind of language. Uh, But here there's the break of the poem in between. I think it shows us how interconnected all of these things are. Now, one of the things we want to keep first and foremost, for always God is the central character of Scripture. And what we want to keep first and foremost in our mind is those passages that attribute victory to the Lord. I'm not going to ask you right now about that question to just list them all. But each time we come to a verse which stresses that the Lord is behind the victory, I don't want you to let me forget to put it on the board. We want to keep that first and foremost in our mind. But verses 1 through 5, Deborah, then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinim, sang on that day, sang that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, you went, you went out from Seir when you marched from the field of Edom. The earthquake, the heavens also dripped. Even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, in verses 1 and uh, 1 through 5. But Deborah and Barak, who will both be mentioned repeatedly throughout this song. In verse 12, they'll be mentioned, uh, they'll be mentioned uh, again throughout. But, but uh, Deborah and Barak sang this song. It talks about the leaders leading, the people volunteering. I think we will see later why it was such a heroic act even to volunteer for battle. But she is blessing the Lord, blessing the Lord, and praising the Lord for all of these things. Verse 2 is going to be very much like verse 9, and we will call attention to it in just a second. And it calls the kings and the rulers to give ear because she's going to sing He's, they're going to sing to the Lord. The kings and rulers would be what kings and what rulers in this passage? They could be kings of other nations. There were no kings 
of Israel. Yes, that's right. There's not kings. There's no king in Israel, you know, as we'll see sometimes stated at the end of the book. And I think this is what has happened with Jabin and Sisera as they, in spite of their overwhelming numbers and over in technological advantage, as the things that have happened to them in being defeated in battle are a statement. They are a statement to all the kings and all the rulers of the world that this God is the God who gives all victories, who is responsible for uh, triumph over their foes. Now, I said a moment ago, don't let me get away from a verse without writing on the board if it talks about uh, the Lord giving victory. Have I missed anything yet? I think verses 2 and 3 both do that. For he says that the Lord blessed the Lord and then in verse 3 they're going to sing to the Lord. The assumption is in all of this that it's the Lord who is responsible for victory. That it's God who's given them triumph in conflict. And then it speaks of the Lord went out from Seir. He went out from Seir, marched through the field of Edom. Seir belongs to the Edomites. And uh, he is talking about God marching through Edom, God marching, um, God marching his presence, his city quaked, the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, Sinai in the presence of the Lord. In this passage of Scripture, this description of God, what is the reason for invoking these images? of Edom and Sinai and what does this tell us about the Lord? What does this tell us? What are these passages demonstrating? Okay, Debbie? The the fear and the power of God in Mount Sinai is what would be represented to me. Okay, the fear and the power of God David, you had your hand. Really, the same thing. Okay. You know, the, the mountains quaking. You think of mountains as being pretty solid and substantial. Yes. But they're quaking in His presence. Exactly. God is in control of it all. Yes, absolutely. He's in control. I saw Sarah and Isaiah. It, that it's the same God who was at Sinai, who is coming marching, marching through the land of Edom, known for its okay. mountainous areas. Uh, in, one day I was teaching, and I don't think this really had hit me full scale, and I hate sometimes for an idea, a really good idea, to hit you right in the midst of class. I don't know if Brian's ever had that feeling, but sometimes you're hit with an idea, and you don't know whether to run with it, whether to hold on to it. But I was just going through Acts 20, and I was looking at everything in Acts 20 that, that calls attention to the resurrection of Jesus. And it was just hitting me stronger than ever that Acts 20 is intentionally stating those things to say that the God of the resurrection is still alive and present among the Christians in Acts 20. And I think it's the same thing here. That the God of the Exodus is still alive and present in Israel. The God of Mount Sinai is still alive. He hasn't abdicated His throne. Isaiah? 
Well, why would you be afraid of iron chariots when <coughs> this is who's on your side? Exactly. Yes, that's right. Any kind of weapons the enemy have do not match. And notice too, the text says in verse 4, the earth quaked, the heavens dripped, even the clouds dripped water. Now that's not the last kind of note like that we're going to see in Judges 5. But remember in the ancient Near East, many people would have said that Baal controlled the storm and that he sent the rain. That he was the God of lightning. But here we find that it's the Lord who does this. Often what the Lord does is in the Bible the things that are attributed to other gods in the ancient Near East are attributed to the Lord. They're attributed to Israel's God. The mountains quaked, the the heavens dripped, the clouds dripped water, uh, Sinai at the presence of the Lord. So I think verses 4 and 5 are also describing the Lord as the one who gives victory in battle. There may not really, in a certain way, we could put every verse in the chapter up there. But uh, particularly these verses demonstrate this. Now, I want to read verses 5 through, or verses 6 through 11. I want you to pay attention particularly at the first part of verse 8 in your translations. Uh, and we're going to come back to that and talk about it in a moment. But what does this say about the overall circumstance and situation of the people of Israel? What does this say about their condition? In verse 6, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. New gods were chosen. I'm interested how that's translated in your versions. New gods were chosen. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who travel on the road, sing. At the sound of those who divide the flocks among the watering places, they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for His peasantry in Israel. Then the people of Israel, the people of the Lord, excuse me, went down to the gates. But she is referring to, in verse 6, a couple of historical characters that we've encountered. Shamgar. In 331, we read of his exploits of killing 600 Philistines. Jael, who in the last chapter, and we'll come back in this chapter again, but she killed Sisera, the commander of the army of Jabin. But in the days of Shamgar, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and travelers went roundabout ways. The idea is that they were oppressed. Maybe they had to avoid the main roads because there was so many 
places that the oppressors charged them heavy taxes if you're to travel on this way. Maybe it was because they would target Israelites and rob them and take things from them. When you see a a video, and and I I don't know that I could bear to watch it. I don't think I did watch it last week. But where you have young people in Chicago just randomly attracting, attacking visitors. That scares people off from, if you're a businessman in that area, that's the last thing you want because everybody's going to be afraid to get out and to go to your business. And I think that's the way it was in Israel. That's the way the situation was. Highways were deserted. Travelers went roundabout ways and they simply ceased making their journeys. Now, point out anything that, that you think, what are some things here that tell us of the condition of Israel, of the straits that they had been brought to in the midst of this calamity? We'll be looking, continue to be looking. But it seems like in verse 7, it says, Until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. This seems to signal a new day in the land. The land had been such that they were afraid to get out. The Israelites were afraid to get out or to travel on the roads. But a new day came when Deborah arose. Now, the New American Standard that I was reading from in verse 8 had new gods. It says new gods were chosen. What do some other translations there? Do you have anything that varies significantly from that, Brad? The NIV says God chose new leaders. Okay, God chose new leaders. Do you spell chose with one O or two? One. Okay, I knew that. Okay, God chose new leaders. He chose new leaders. Um, So, one of the things about poetry in the Old Testament, one of the things that the Hebrew language has is a sign of a direct object, which often is... It's there to help you know who is the subject and who is the object. Often in poetry, poetry condenses words and ideas. And in poetry, that sign of the direct object doesn't occur very much. And so sometimes it's hard to know, is God the object of the choosing? New gods were chosen. Or is God the subject who chooses? Now, what difference does that make in our view of that verse? If it is like the New American Standard says, new gods were chosen, what's the verse doing? What is the verse doing? It's, it's saying the Israelites turned to, to idols because they were so oppressed and yeah. the, all of that, they decided we're going to abandon God and we're going to go okay. to Baal or whatever. So, in the New American Standard, Sarah said, this is a description of their apostasy. They they chose new gods. 
And really that is the problem of all the book, isn't it? The American standard translates it, they chose new gods. They chose new gods. Okay, they chose new gods, new so gods were chosen. Go along with the yeah. Still has the still has it as an object and still has the same idea right. that it's a description of how Israel got into the problem to begin with. But if you look at the NIV in this particular passage that uh, that you all mentioned, that it has the idea of of God choosing your leaders. Now, it seems like to me that this might better fit the context if verse 7 is talking about a new day. Until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel, new gods were chosen. Well, that, that goes back to describing the problem. But if he says God chose new leaders, that continues this description of the uh, of the good days that are about to come. Now understand, there are several difficulties with translation in this a poem. That is perhaps the most significant as far as interpretive things, but, but there are several little difficulties with this. And the statement was not a spear or shield was found among 40,000. You remember that sometimes when Israel was a weaker power, when Israel was weak, the enemy controlled the technology. Now, an illustration of what I'm talking about is in 1 Samuel 13, verses 17 through 22. And what happens when the Philistines were powerful is the Philistines didn't let Israel sharpen their weapons or their spears unless they paid a heavy price. And sometimes when you're weak and oppressed, you're finding it difficult to survive. You don't even have to think about the luxury of a spear or a shield. But this shows us the disadvantage that Israel was at in this battle with Jabin and Sisera. Not only does Jabin have powerful weapons, 900 iron chariots and a vast army, but Israel has a lack of these very things. The only way to explain this victory is the Lord. The Lord intervened. And sometimes God lets things get as bad as they can be in order to demonstrate that He is the one who gives victory. In verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people, bless the Lord. Now that verse is a lot like verse 2, isn't it? She sees these leaders of the army, she sees these people volunteer for battle against an unbeatable foe, and it might look like from a human perspective they're marching off to a death sentence. And she, her heart goes out to them. And she says, bless the Lord. But I'll tell you something that hit me in just reading over that and thinking over that this week. Verse 2 and verse 5, verse 2 and verse 9 remind us that behind every good act of every good person, the Lord should be praised. 
It is not first and foremost a reason to praise the person, though we do appreciate good people, and we should. But it's a reason to praise God. Because there would be no good in my life or your life were it not for Him. And we would never find the courage to face the foe except for Him. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And verse 10, You who ride on white donkeys, and you who sit on carpets, the word rich is in italics in the New American Standard. You who sit on carpets. So they sit on carpets, they ride on white donkeys. What seems to be the point he's making about these people he's describing? Their wealth. Their wealth. Their prosperity. My guess is that, that it's not, it would not be a status symbol in your neighborhood to ride on a white donkey. Uh, status symbols may change from culture to culture, from society to society, but isn't it amazing? They all have them. They all seem to have them. That you got people who are riding on white donkeys, which seem to have been some things that I read particularly valued because they were more rare because they were not as common, and you find the carpets. And then who would be the people who travel on the road? In verse 10. Merchants. Okay, it could be merchants. Yes, it could be merchants, but it, it, these are people who don't have the means of transportation that others do. You know, it may be a way of saying the rich and the common person, uh, just grouping everybody together. But he wants them all to hear the song, hear the sound of God and what He has done. He wants them to listen to the people as they're singing in the watering places for their flocks. He wants them to hear the sound of recounting the righteous deeds of the Lord. Verse 11, uh, that uh, the righteous deeds for his peasantry, for his common people. And so, verse 11, again, is a strong reminder that the things that, that this, this song that Deborah is singing is among these. That they are songs of celebration of God's righteous acts. David? Uh, didn't royalty kings ride on donkeys? Don't we see that picture? Certainly, Jesus. Jesus does, and, and of course, that's got a meaning um, all its own. Uh, own in uh, Matthew twenty-one, and Lord willing, we'll get there soon. But just to look in Judges for that, David, look at Judges ten verse four. Judges ten verse four. It mentions a, a minor judge by the name of Jair. And it said he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead. 30 sons, 30 donkeys, 30 cities. Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 14. 
He had 40 sons. This is talking about Abdon in verse 13. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. So, so yes, it is a sign of leadership. It's a sign of affluence. It is a sign even of royalty that, that these people are living this way. Now, I'll tell you one of the reasons I think the mention of that with those minor judges it may be, remember, um, God warned the king, don't accumulate silver and gold for yourself. They don't have a king yet. But I think that by mentioning how the families of these men rode on donkeys, that may be saying these judges, even these, these minor judges we don't know as much about, took advantage of their position. And it's a, it's a forewarner. It forewarns us of worse things that are going to come in Israel's history. But yes, that's a very good very good point. What what other thoughts on verses one through eleven? Anything? Okay. What yes, Sarah? did they go down to at the end of eleven? Say that again. What gates? Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Okay. Um it's not specified what city that that would be talking about. Uh, it, it may be just the fact that the gates were um, places where business was transacted and things happened. It was kind of it kind of it may be parallel, Sarah, in verse eleven to the watering places. Gotcha. That, that it's just places that people talk about these things. These are places gotcha. that communities meet. That may be the significance, I, I, but, I'm, but I'm not 100% sure. The country folk and the city folk. Yes, yes, it, that, may be, that may be the point. That may be that. Uh, very good. So you added to my thoughts, Sarah, a little bit. The, the, the city, the gates, the country people with the flocks. Um, I ran across this statement, and uh, we'll look and see if this is true. But I ran across this, that only in verse 11 and verse 13 are, are Israelites called the people of the Lord in the book of Judges. I don't know that. I didn't check out every reference. But I thought that was an interesting fact right there at the beginning. Now, one of the things, too, I ask you to look for in the question is the roll call... We have kind of here a roll call of tribes. And we have the tribes who volunteered. And we have the tribes that did not volunteer. And let's just read the text and let's I'll let you help me add to this in just a moment. Brian, would you want to read 12 through 18? Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinuam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is and Amalek came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Maker, commanders came down, and from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. 
and the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan, and why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. Okay, we're going to look some at our map here, just to give you a little bit of an idea the Kishon, the brook Kishon was in this area. Megiddo is a city mentioned here in 519 in a moment. We found Mount Tabor, which was in this area. It's, it's, um, it's hard to say at what point were the, all the armies at what place. Because some of these places are, are spread apart. And some of the people have even imagined, and we know this is true often in warfare, that there were... Uh, a couple of different battles within this one overall battle. A couple of different places where where conflict and skirmishes broke out. But who would be some of the tribes that volunteered in this particular conflict? Who are some of the tribes that are engaged in this conflict? Ephraim is the first one mentioned there in verse 14. It says their root is in Amlek. Now, may that mean that the Amalekites have just made inroads into Ephraim's territory? It may be all that it means. I'm not sure. Who else? Benjamin. Benjamin. Benjamin joined the battle. And the statement is, after you, Benjamin. One of the things, there are two prophets in particular who constantly pick up on language in Israel's history and reapply it in their situation. Isaiah does that and Hosea does that. Hosea will use this same phrase in Hosea 5 verse 8. He will use this same phrase behind you, Benjamin, or after you, Benjamin, uh, in the midst of that discussion. And when he does so, I think he's invoking this whole conflict, this, this whole idea of, of Deborah and Barak and the victory God gave them over Jabin and Sisera. So, following you, Benjamin. I'm not saying that other prophets don't do that, but Hosea and Isaiah master it, perfect it. Maker is mentioned. Now, tell me, who is Maker? Maker Maker was the oldest son of Manasseh. And we read that in Genesis 50, verse 23. And so, Maker is a reference here to the tribe of Manasseh. Maker came down. The commanders came down. Uh, Zebulun came down. Now, look at the people who are involved in this battle. You have Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh involved. Zebulun is involved in verse 15, the text says. Who else? Issachar. Issachar is involved as well. 
Zebulun is verse 14, and Issachar is verse 15. Which of these tribes do you say get the highest praise? Zebulun and Naphtali in verse 18, it says they risk their lives even until death. They, uh, so Zebulun, Naphtali, Issachar, all these tribes involved in the conflict, but Zebulun and Naphtali are particularly praised. Now, they were the only true two tribes mentioned in this conflict in chapter 4. They were mentioned in 4 verse 6 and 4 verse 10. The only two tribes in that chapter. Here we find several of the tribes involved. I think that shows us the bulk of this army is from Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, those of you who were with us when we were in the book of Joshua, and sometimes, uh, sometimes I was blessed enough to be in a meeting and to miss some of the chapters and leave Paul with the hard chapters in Joshua, um, Joshua 13 through 21. But you remember in that section, one of the things I tried to do is to talk about some famous person that was from a particular tribe. Do you know how hard it is to come up with famous people from Zebulun and Naphtali? I mean, that's just not something that's easy to do. But I want to tell you something that's done. To me, this underlines the fact that this is a historically accurate account. If this is made up, this is made up just to glorify Israel and particularly glorify the tribes that became powerful. Why would you pick out these two tribes who almost disappear from their history? who almost disappear from their history. Why are you going to pick them out as the greatest particular warriors in this conflict? There's no reason to do it except that's the way it happened. Did you see the argument there? You see the point that I'm trying to make? That if it's not historically accurate, there's no reason to make up the story that way. Now, let me, let me jump to another question. Before we talk about those who didn't volunteer... What tribes don't even merit a mention in this particular chapter? And what was that? Judah. Judah and what else? Simeon. Simeon. Okay. Uh, Judah and Simeon in particular. Now, Judah exercises a leadership position in the book of Judges. Brad was teaching in Judges 1. Who will go up for us? And what was the answer, Brad? Simeon. Judah and Simeon. Judah and Simeon. So they had, Judah exercises this leadership position. In Judges 20, we'll find at the end of the book, they're still exercising leadership. But the point that what you see, they exercise leadership position, but they don't even merit a mention. Again, all of that underlines the historical nature of this. Okay, now I heard some other names, and my hearing is a little bit off today. I apologize. And I didn't hear every tribe that was called. 
but I, I was thinking I was hearing somebody did say Gad. Uh, a lot of people believe that the reference to Gilead, which it could be a reference to this whole region, but was particularly a region a, a reference to Gad. If it's not, it may be a reference to Gad and Manasseh over here. Who are some other tribes who did not volunteer? Levi is not mentioned, but they were exempt from war altogether. Okay, so you wouldn't expect that. But Gad uh, may be mentioned with Gilead there in five seventeen, and you also have Dan, Asher, and Reuben. Dan, Asher, and Reuben. They were, there was great searchings of heart. No, they were wondering about it. But they don't end up going. But all these tribes are, these tribes in verses 15 through 17 who didn't go, they're they're not as strongly rebuked as Meraz is in 5.23. Now, Christy struggled long and hard, I know, because I told her to... You know, where else is Miro's bitch in the Old Testament? She told me last night she looked for that for 30 minutes. What, what answer did you come to? It's not mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. Now, part of my point in asking that was not just to be a trick question. He says, curse Miro's. Let's look at verse 23. He said, curse Miro's, said the angel of the Lord, Curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Maybe the fact that it's never mentioned again shows how effective that curse was. We don't even know where it was. We don't know if it's a city. We don't know if it's a region. We don't know where it's located. We don't know anything about it. That curse was apparently effective. But I want you to see something else in verse 23. When Miraz is cursed, it says they did not come to the help of the Lord. Now, I know it is very hard for us to relate to the fact that this military battle could be described as God's work and I'm not trying to get into a full discussion of all the ramifications of that. But I am saying this is viewed as the Lord's work in this chapter. It's the Lord's work. And they didn't come to the help of the Lord. They didn't have the kind of bravery that Zebulun and Naphtali did. That this is, If this is what the Lord said, we will risk everything. For it. May God help us to learn from that. But let's look at the conflict. In verses 19 through 22, about all we read of this conflict, it says, The kings came and fought, they fought in the kings of Canaan. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh, at, at Tanakh near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver and gold. The stars fought. From heaven, and from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrents of Kishon swept away the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Oh, 
my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hoofs beat from the dashing to the dashing of the valiant steeds. Okay, the kings came and fought. You might say, what kings? Maybe the point is the king, Jabin, his forces represent all these kings. Maybe there were other kings that joined him in battle. Either could have been true. But this is viewed as more than a victory over one people and one nation. This is the Lord's victory over all these peoples and nations who defy Him. Right away we're told in verse 19 that for Sisera and his commanders, this is not going to be fruitful. They took no plunder in silver. But it says in verse 20, the stars fall from heaven. Now that doesn't specifically mention God. But who is it who creates the stars and controls them? You know, obviously this is a description of the Lord giving them victory in battle. Do you know in Canaanite literature they talk about the same kind of thing happening in battle and that Baal, uh, the stars, Baal sends the stars to send rain to give his people victory in battle. Again, what I'm trying to say is the Bible takes the same kind of language that people in the ancient Near East apply to their God, Baal, and says that it's not Baal who does this, but it's the Lord, Yahweh, who does this. He sends the stars to fight against Sisera and the torrent of the Kishon, which it can be no more than a brook a lot of the year. But it becomes here an overflowing stream that renders apparently putting this together with Judges 4 and what we saw last time, how uh, Sisera just left his chariot behind and fled on foot, that, the, that this flash flood in the Kishon uh, River makes these chariots useless and God gives His people victory against insurmountable odds. And it's really an amazing thing. I, I may not have gone into enough detail. Verses 19 through 22, what questions do you have? What thoughts do you have? Anything? Beginning with verse 24, there's going to be a kind... Go ahead, Andrew. The, the, the fact that they took no silver, um, I mean, there wasn't like a command for that. Is it just because they wanted to rid them up? I, I, I don't think, Andrew, that is a statement about Israel's forces. I think that's a statement as he's talking about these kings who attack Israel that they're not going to get anything as a battle. At first, we're just told they're not, going to, they're not going to prosper from the conflict. Then, as the text goes on, we read they were defeated in the conflict. So the news only gets worse for Canaan. But I've taken it that way instead of like a comparison to Jericho, which is very, very good to make those comparisons. But uh, I, I think there's probably a reference to uh, the, um, the Canaanites. <clears throat> But verse 24 is going to contrast with verse 30. It's going to contrast two women. Jael and um, 
Sisera's mother. Verse 24, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water and she gave him milk in a magnificent bowl. She brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between his feet... Her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. When he bowed down, there he fell dead. It's one of the best poems I've ever read to somebody that smashed a person's head with a hand. <laughs> who, who else? Did you show you the contrast? Who is addressed? Who's another woman kind of addressed like this in the Bible? Most blessed of women. Mary. Mary. Mary in Luke 1 42. A little difference in their character. A little difference in their character. But um, if you've ever read, some of you have seen in the book of uh, the Apocrypha, um, um, well, let me drop that. We're already behind. Most blessed of women is JL, but. But she gives him milk. So we see Jael's the wife of Heber, just like in Joshua or Judges 4. We see that she gives him milk. She reaches out her tent peg. She smashes his head. And, and, and verse 27 is what we would call climactic poetry. Uh, it keeps repeating the lines and keeps adding to them. Between her feet, he bowed. He fell, he lay. Between her feet, he bowed, he fell, he bowed. But, but it keeps adding to it. But we have dead Sisera on the floor before Jael. The blessing pronounced upon Jael in verse 24 is in contrast to the curse pronounced upon Miraz in verse 23. Some have made the contrast like this. Miraz may have been, why was it singled out for such a curse? It may have been an Israelite city or area. It seems like it is to me. Canaanites were already cursed that changed sides and maybe they sided with the Canaanites. Jael was a foreigner who sides with Israel. Maybe that's part of the contrast. But this is both. This is sad in its own way, though it also demonstrates God's victory. Verse 28. Out of the window she looked and lamented the mother of Sisera through the lattice, why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats carry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeats her words to herself. Are they not dividing? Are they not dividing a spoil, a maiden, two maidens for every warrior? To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work? A spoil of dyed work embroidered? Dyed work? <coughs> Uh, dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of a spoiler. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love Him be like the rising of the sun in its might. Sisera's mother twice asked why in verse 28. She is looking out the window, out the lattice, and she is saying, why do His chariots Delay. She's wondering, why is it taking him so long to get back from the battle? Her wise maids answer her, oh, they got so much spoil, they're just dividing it among themselves. But we know, 
he's never going to return. And though this passage celebrates the death of Sisera as an enemy of God, it also shows us the horrors of war. It shows us the horrors of war. It shows us the enemy commander's mother anxiously longing for him to return. And we know she'll never see him alive again. And so it is a tremendous piece of poetry here to capture our emotions and to help us to see not only the horrors of war, but even more than that, verse 31, the horrors of being enemies of God. That's the worst thing. The horrors of being His enemies, and yet the blessedness of loving Him. But those who love Him will be like the rising of the sun. Now, Isaiah, would you know this question? Where would be a passage in the Bible that would use both of these words, window and lattice. When the king falls out of the... Okay, it may be. It may in 2 Kings 1. That wasn't. I was thinking, he taught Proverbs recently. Proverbs 7, 6 is the only passage I know that uses both of these words. Now, do you know the context of Proverbs 7? It's talking about adultery and warns against adultery in the strongest terms. It is fascinating to me that here it's those two words are used. Now think it's the only two only two passages where those two words are used. In the Bible it's described as Sisera's death. And that may be a reminder to us, the use of that language, that Sisera is an example of what happens to all who fall to this sin of adultery as well. Lord willing, on Wednesday night we'll try to cover Judges 6. David volunteered to teach on next Sunday. Paul also was gracious to volunteer as well, but but David beat him by just a little bit. Um, So we do appreciate that, and I know I had others that said some things. Have you got anybody after those two had volunteered? So thank you, Brad. Um, You you might have glossed over this just because it's not very savory, but um, it also, to me, speaks to the the gravity that you would comfort uh, Sisera's mother by saying he's probably 